T-minus 10, 9, ignition sequence starts. Coming to you from a small undisclosed outpost somewhere in Radioland, it's Because I Said So. Parenting advice with love and leadership from the nation's leading parenting expert, syndicated columnist, author, conference speaker, and the only psychologist to point out that psychology has caused more problems than it has solved for American parents. John Rosemond. People like this are a menace to decent society. Call in now about anything from toddlers to teens, even your 20-something toddlers who refuse to stop sucking on the pacifier of your standard of living. Let's not talk about it in front of the boy. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. From American Family Radio Network, here's your host, John Rosemond. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And welcome to the inaugural edition of Because I Said So, the only radio program in America devoted exclusively to the subject of raising children or, more accurately, raising adults who honor our Lord and make America a better place. I'm John Rosemond, a 42-year veteran of family counseling, a psychologist, I'll get to that in a minute, but more pertinently, most pertinently, husband of 47 years to Wilma, whom I have always called Willie, father of two self-supporting, and that is the operative condition, adults, and grandparent to seven well-behaved, believe it or not, all seven of them, grandchildren. I am, in fact, a psychologist, but this program is not about psychology. Let me assure you of that. As my capable announcer mentioned, I am one of less than a handful of psychologists who believes that our profession has created more problems for the American family than we psychologists even know how to solve. I am first and foremost a believer in the Lordship of Christ Jesus and a believer in the sufficiency of Scripture, and I mean the complete sufficiency of Scripture. In keeping with that, I believe proper parenting is an act of love for your neighbor. In other words, one way that we keep the Lord's commandment to love one another is to raise our children to be respectful, responsible, well-mannered, good citizens of this life. I'll take your calls in a few minutes at 404-419-6499. Once again, 404 Four one nine six four nine nine. But first, here's a story that illustrates how governments mess things up completely when they get involved in things they shouldn't get involved in. In the 1980s, largely as a consequence of buying into, signing on to what is called the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, and I invite you to go to... Uh, the Internet and Google, United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, and read this document, which President Bill Clinton signed while he was in office. Uh, It has never been ratified by the Senate, as treaties must be before they are uh, binding upon the United States. Uh, And it wasn't ratified Uh, because of uh, opposition from within the Senate. And uh, uh, however, 
we came close to ratifying it in 2009, about five months after President Obama's inauguration. Uh, Barbara Boxer, one of my least favorite people, senator from California, uh, threatened to try and push it through the Senate when the uh, Democrats had, uh, I believe, 60 people, a filibuster-proof uh, majority in the Senate. It did not uh, fly at that point in time because there were actually there was actually some opposition on the part of Democratic senators. But anyway, uh, as a consequence of buying into, signing on to the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, Sweden outlawed parental spanking. Now, to put this in context, uh, a number of European countries have followed suit. Uh, I believe England is one of them, and Canada has come very close to outlawing parental spanking if they have not done so by this point in time. And the United States anti-spanking movement is gaining steam, albeit largely behind the scenes, but it will rock and roll, believe me. If Hillary Clinton ever becomes president of the USA, she was one of the people who had input into the drafting of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. Ten years after Sweden outlawed parental spanking, I get this, a follow-up study conducted by a friend of mine, research psychologist Robert Larzalaire. He is not a clinical psychologist. He is an ethical research psychologist. I have a tremendous respect for Bob. He's at uh, Oklahoma State University, discovered that the abuse of children by their parents in Sweden had actually increased since Sweden enacted an anti-spanking law. Now, is that just amazing or what? It's called the law of unintended consequences. Now, one can dismiss this as saying, well, it's something one guy discovered. But when the findings of one researcher corroborate the findings of another, and they have worked independent of one another, it is a fairly sure bet that both researchers are on to something, and such, in fact, is the case here. Since the early 1970s, another research psychologist, Diana Baumrind, she's at the University of California, Berkeley, a very liberal place, has conducted an extensive longitudinal investigation of parenting styles. And among other fascinating things, Baumrind has discovered that parents who are philosophically opposed to spanking often admit now, philosophically opposed. In other words, they say they don't believe in spanking, but they often admit in confidential interviews to having occasionally exploded in violent verbal and physical rages toward their children. Barman believes that spanking serves as a safety valve releasing parental frustration before it builds to the breaking point. In and of itself, mind you, this is not a justification for spanking, but this is. Barmerand has discovered that children who are occasionally spanked are considerably more well-adjusted, considerably more well-behaved, do better socially and do better in school than children whose parents claim to have never spanked. Now, folks... People ask me a lot, John, do you, do you believe in spanking? And I say, you know, believe. I don't believe in it. I, I don't think it's some doctrine, uh, religious or otherwise. Uh, and I'll discuss that uh, in a later show. But um, 
I, I have no opposition to spanking whatsoever conducted by parents who are loving parents, responsible parents who spank occasionally, who aren't using spanking as a primary form of discipline. Um, but uh, here is what the research says. The research indicates clearly children who are spanked are more well-adjusted than children who are not, and parents who spank raise more well-adjusted children, and parents who claim, claim being the operative condition, to not spank are likely, more likely than parents who do occasionally spank, to explode in verbal and physical rages toward their children on occasion. And Baumrind is not the only researcher who has found that occasional and that is the operative word. Occasional spankings produce positive outcomes, but for our purposes right now, that will suffice. Once again, I'm John Rosemond, and uh, this is Because I Said So, the only radio program in America devoted exclusively to child-rearing issues. Our phone number is 404 419 You can email your questions to radio at rosemond.com that's radio at rosemond.com or if you would rather tweet it's at john k rosemond i am john kirk rosemond this is because i said so back with your calls after this Welcome back to Because I Said So, the only radio program in America that's devoted exclusively to the subject of parenting or child rearing, as I prefer to call it, actually. I'm your host, John Rosemond, and uh, you can find out more about me by going to my website at johnrosemond.com. That's J-O-H-N-R-O-S-E-M-O-N-D, D as in David, dot com. And um, by the way, back in the spring, I recorded, uh, filmed, I guess is the accurate term, four 30-minute videos at American Family Studios in Tupelo, Mississippi. And you, if you want to learn more, even more about me, you can go to those videos. You can go to that website, afastore.net, and uh, four videos uh, on the issue of parenting different permutations concerning the subject. Um, again, I'm John Roseman. This is Because I Said So. Our phone number is 404-419-6499 if you want to join the show. And on the line right now, we've got Michelle, our first caller. And Michelle is from Alaska. Michelle, welcome to the show. And how can I help you? Oh, thank you. Very excited to speak with you. I have a three-year-old son and a three-month-old son. What are some things my husband and I can do and also avoid doing to encourage a good relationship between them? Well, uh, let me turn that question right back at you. What is it? What is your concern here? You want to know what you can do to foster a good relationship with them at this point in time, which is a fine uh, objective, a fine goal. Uh, this is a three-year-old and a three-month-old. What? Tell me what your concern is. I'm concerned I'll interfere too much. In in 
in what? The way that they interact with each other? The way that they interact with each other, possibly teasing that just goes on between siblings or seeing the, the younger one as, as an innocent victim, um, that sort of thing. Okay, well, the first thing I want to say is, and, and this is an important understanding for parents, and, and you're, you know, you've been the parent of an only child for three years or almost three years, and, and now you have a second, and so you're dealing with sibling issues at this point in time. Um, and, and I applaud the fact, Michelle, by the way, that you're being proactive about this. But let me say this, you, you can bring too much anxiety to an issue, too much proactive anxiety to an issue and cause more problems as a consequence than, than you end up solving. So uh, the, the first thing I'm going to do is just to let you know that the sibling relationship is a, a very dicey relationship and you have influence over it as a parent. That is absolutely correct. But you do not, as a parent, have a determining influence over this. In other words, you can do uh, everything by the book to help these children develop a good relationship, and these children may have a problematic relationship despite your best efforts. There's a chemistry to the sibling relationship that is... Uh, uh, off the table, I'll say, as as far as parent influence is concerned. But um, uh, we had two children, my wife and I, Willie and I, Wilma, her proper name. I, I want to make that very clear. We had two children who were three and a half years apart. And um, we did everything possible to promote a good relationship. And they still had a relatively contentious relationship uh, they loved each other. Uh, that was that was very very obvious that they loved one another. They they felt deeply for one another, but they were also very competitive with each other. They compared uh, what we were doing for one another uh, constantly. Uh, you're giving him more than you're giving me. You let him do this. You're not letting me. That sort of thing. They violated each other's territories uh, provocatively. You know, Willie and I just had to, at some point in time, and I don't remember exactly at one point in time, just accept that the chemistry between these two children was such that there was going to be contention. And I tell parents all the time, Michelle, you know, you can only influence so much and you have to learn to let go of the things that you really cannot determine. You, you can influence, you cannot determine uh, many things, and this is, is one of those things. First of all, I, I wouldn't really be too proactive in doing anything about their relationship at this point in time. Uh, I would just stand back and see how this relationship is going to play out. I would first assess what is, for lack of a better term, the nature of the chemistry between these two children. And uh, once you see what the nature of the chemistry is, then you can adjust your parenting behavior accordingly. Sibling conflict is an issue that I am asked about quite frequently. In fact, it's probably in the top five of subjects, parenting subjects that I'm asked about. And uh, 
one of the things that I tell people is that where sibling conflict is concerned, uh, the thing to be concerned about or the thing to be constantly aware about is to not identify when you intervene in, in sibling conflict, to not identify one of the children as a victim, to hold both children equally responsible for the problem, to put them into the same boat, so to speak, and uh, force them by putting them into the same boat, by holding them equally responsible for the problem, in effect forcing them to learn how to resolve their own problems, to learn that mommy and daddy are not going to resolve our problems for us, and that if our problems become disruptive to the family, mom and dad are, in fact, going to intervene, but neither of us is going to be the beneficiary of that intervention. When you begin identifying one child, and usually the child who gets identified as the victim is the younger child, the smaller child, or unfortunately the female child, if the two kids are fairly close in age, when you begin doing that, uh, what you actually do is uh, reinforce the very, very dangerous notion on the part of the child who's being identified as the victim that by playing the role of victim in a conflict situation, you can turn things to your advantage. And I point out to people all the time, look, you know adults who are like this. And Mm -hmm. you know adults who, when they get into conflict, they play the victim. And I'm convinced that these are people who learned this very dysfunctional uh, problem-solving style when they were children. Um, and and they learned it because their very well-intentioned parents were trying to equalize things constantly between an older child and a younger child or a bigger child and a smaller child or a male child and a female child, a more aggressive child and a more passive child, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, uh, here's one thing. W- Willie and I, um, we... Uh, one of the uh, one of the things we did when our kid, we established a do not disturb the family peace law, and we simply said to the kids, "Look, uh, you can have your conflict. We we hope that you will be respectful of one another, but you are children, and, and we know that you will not always be respectful of one another in conflict with one another. Uh, we are not going to try and solve your conflicts uh, for the most part." But when your conflicts uh, reach a stage of disruption that affects the entire family's peace, we are going to intervene, and we are going to intervene in a way that holds you both responsible. And one of the things that we used to do is we used to put both of the children in the downstairs bathroom, which was a room that was maybe six feet by five feet. It was the smallest room in the house, what women often call the powder room. And um, we, uh, we would say to the kids, uh, you're going to be in this room together uh, until you figure. And, and the reason we chose that room is because, you know, they, they were in close confinement with one another. And you are going to be in this room together until you can explain to us how you are going to solve this problem. And... Um, that's what we did when uh, their conflict became uh, uh, got to a a certain level of disruption. 
uh, Willie and I would uh, call timeout and uh, uh, put them both in the downstairs bathroom. And, you know, we would, on the way to the downstairs bathroom, it was, but dad, she did this. And no, dad, he did that. And and uh, we'd put them in the downstairs bathroom. There'd be a period of silence. And then there'd be mm-hmm. some talking and... Um, then the door would open, and usually it was Eric, uh, the older one, who would say, uh, Dad, Mom, we've figured out how we're going to solve this. And uh, sure enough, they uh, they would come up with a solution. But, uh, you, you know, the conflict just, uh, it, uh, it, it, it seemed to be we, we could control it in the sense that we could minimize it, Michelle, but we were never able to stop it. And uh, what I learned from that is something very important that I pass on to parents all the time. You're not going to be able to solve all of your children's problems by the time they emancipate. Don't take on that challenge because all you're going to end up doing is feeling very, very frustrated. Um, Michelle, you are the first caller to this show. This is the inaugural show I thank you very, very much for your willingness to participate in the show. And as a demonstration of my appreciation to you, I'm going to send you a free copy of my book, Parenting by the Book. Now, if you've already got that, let me know, and I'll send you, I'll send you something else. Do you already have that book? We don't have that one. We'd love to have it. All right. I'll tell you what. You stay on the line, and you give your, uh, your address to Thomas, our call screener, and that book will be on its way to you within a week. Okay? Thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much. Well, this is John Rosemond, and uh, the show is Because I Said So. Again, the only radio program in America devoted exclusively to the subject of parenting or child-rearing issues. Our number, 404, jot it down, 419-6499. You can email your questions to radio at rosemond.com. That's radio at rosemond.com. Or if you would rather tweet, it's at John K. Rosemond. I am John Kirk Rosemond, your host, and we'll be back in a few minutes with astounding parenting stories from around the world and more of your calls. Family Radio Network, it's Because I Said So. Now once again, here's your host, John Rosemond. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm John Rosemond, and we're going to begin this segment with an astounding, amazing parenting story from around the world. Uh, I'm not going to identify the school system. I'm not going to name people by name. If they're listening, they know who they are, but I'm going to... uh, Keep things confidential to protect the guilty here. Um, There is a school system in America, and in the school system, a controversial high school principal resigned his position. He was controversial because he believed in holding children to standards. Now, this is radical. 
not making excuses for students and forcing rules and the like. That can get you into big trouble in America's public schools these days. School systems have disciplinary policies, yes, but superintendents, not to mention parents, do not like it when someone actually enforces the rules dispassionately and without prejudice, as did the administrator in question. So, under some administrative pressure, he left, resigned, which is too bad because America's schools, and especially public schools, which are broken, need more people like him. Two administrators, after the principal's resignation, sent a memo around addressed to all the teachers in the system, and some of the things they wrote included that teachers are to arrive each day ready to teach. We know that some students will arrive not ready to learn. The role of a teacher is to teach the unteachable and motivate the non-motivated. Not true. Not true at all. The role of a teacher is to create an environment that is conducive to learning. The role of the student is to learn. A teacher is not responsible for a student who is not, quote, teachable, end quote, or non-motivated by definition. In fact, such a student cannot be taught or motivated, correct? Indeed, correct. And indeed, such students exist. The fact is, teachers should not be punished because of these students. Teachers should not be punished because human nature is the way that it is. Another item in the memo, quote, we must create an environment that teaches success. Life will teach children to fail. Teachers with high failure rates will need to be prepared to justify to administration why their failure rates are so high. And the response that students won't work is not the answer that we will accept. End quote. Wrong again. Life does not teach people to fail. That is not true. Life in America gives people plenty of opportunities to succeed. People fail of their own accord. When a person fails, it's not because of life. It's because of something the person did or did not do. It is because of decisions that he or she made. It is not because of some uh, nebulous force in uh, his or her environment. The fact is, furthermore, some students won't work. They are, pardon my description, inveterate, lazy, good-for-nothings by the time they reach high school. Their environments can't be blamed because some of these good-for-nothings come from good homes. The implication here is that their teachers should engage in deception to wit, These teachers should pretend that those students are working when they are not and give them good grades that they don't deserve. This is a policy that sets children up for later failure of a much more serious sort. Let me be blunt. The people who wrote this memo have their heads on backwards. Third item in the memo, create positive relationships with students. It is the only way, wrong again, One is to assume, I take it, that one of a teacher's responsibilities is to have a wonderful relationship with all of his or her students. Uh, Now, I went to school in the 1950s and early 1960s, elementary and high school. I cannot think of one teacher who ever tried 
to have a wonderful relationship with me. In fact, they had virtually no relationship with me, and that was just fine with me. They were authority figures, not my pals. Before getting touchy-feely with students insinuated itself into American education, American education worked. This very, ah, I'll call it what it is, it's a dumb memo, is a good example of why American public schools don't work nearly as well as they once did. And the problem, folks, is not teachers. The problem, not exclusively but to great degree, is administrators like the one in question. Another amazing and astounding parenting story from around the world. Again, I'm John Roseman. This is Because I Said So. Our phone number is 404-419-6499. I'll say it again, 404-419-6499. We've got a caller on the line. Now we've got a second caller on the line. Our next caller on the line is David from Kentucky. David, thanks for hanging in there and waiting on us patiently. How can I help you? Well, um, first one to thank you for your work. My wife and I have greatly benefited from what we've been able to read and hear from you. I wanted to ask a specific question to our current um, problem we're facing with our oldest son. We have five children. He's our oldest of six years age, six years old, um, and uh, he seems to think that he can talk to my wife, who's the primary caregiver, about anything, wherever he is, whenever he wants. And as much as we've tried to um, and give him consequences, tell him he can't do that. He still thinks it's what he can do, and I wanted to see what your perspective was on that. Well, I don't really, uh, and you're going to need to explain this a little more, a little more clearly to me. Uh, and, and maybe it's the fact that I'm, uh, I'm now on, uh, on, on Medicare. But uh, what exactly do you mean? What uh, are you saying that he interrupts conversations? Um, he won't interrupt conversations um, all the time. It's not always that's not always the problem. Um, he does come up to us, tap us on the shoulder, um, you know, constantly. If he's got an idea or a thought, um, with, when we're in conversation, we kindly correct him, say you need to wait until we're done. Um, How many times a day, David, on average, do you do you end up doing that? Uh, correcting him because he's interrupted a conversation. Just give me give me a, an average number. Yeah, if we're always friends or at Bible study or whatever, I'd say probably three or four times. Um, maybe in a whole in a whole day, four or five, possibly. Okay. Well, the then uh, here here's where I here's where I would uh, focus my energies. I would focus my energies on interrupting conversations. Uh, uh, the The reason being is that the the uh, the problem of the way you describe it, uh, talking to your wife whenever he wants about whatever he wants, um, is a little too nebulous, I think, for a six-year-old to wrap his head around. So what I'm going to suggest is that you, be, you focus more specifically on interrupting conversations taking place between an adult and someone else, whether it's an adult or a child. And uh, use uh, a technique that I describe at great length in one of my books. It's called The Well-Behaved Child, the subtitle Discipline That Really Works. And um, the technique is three strikes, you're out. Uh, He would begin every day with no strikes. 
Every time he interrupts a conversation, he would receive a strike. So you and your wife are talking, uh, and he comes up and either taps one of you on the shoulder or uh, intrudes himself in some way, shape, or form into the conversation. And one of you uh, would then say to him, uh, whatever his name is, Billy, uh, that is an example of interrupting a conversation. We have told you that that is inappropriate. That is your first strike of the day. And what I would do with a six-year-old, even though timeout does not work well in and of itself, it does work fairly well in combination with other forms of discipline. So I would put him in timeout for 10 minutes for the first strike. When the second strike occurs, I would put him in timeout for 20 minutes. When the third strike occurs, he goes to his room for the rest of the day, and he goes to bed at least an hour early. And if the third strike occurs after the one hour early uh, time, then he would go to bed immediately. So in other words, if his normal bedtime is 8.30, uh, and he would, upon his third strike, go to bed at 7.30, and the third strike occurs at 7.45, he would go to bed immediately. W mm -hmm. Was that clear enough? Yeah, I, um, the 10 minutes, 20 minutes um, room for the rest of the day reminds me of something that my wife and I laugh about a lot, which is the... Uh, the statement you made about going nuclear, is that correct? Well, this wouldn't be exactly going nuclear. I, I, uh, I, I, I will talk about that. I call it going nuclear. I call it kicking the child out of the Garden of Eden. For a problem like this, which I regard as a, uh, it, it's not a, uh, it's disrespectful. Um, it is, but it's not defiance. It's not rebelliousness. Um, right. and, and I reserve going nuclear and kicking a child out of the garden of Eden. Again, all described in that book, the well-behaved child. Uh, I reserve that for blatant disrespect, blatant uh, rebelliousness, blatant defiance of which this is not an example. So I would just, uh, David, encourage you to target this one problem Focus on this one problem and get this one problem resolved. And I uh, have every reason because of experience to believe that uh, three strikes you're out consistently applied is going to do it within three to four weeks. And uh, what I will also predict is that as the uh, interruptions decrease, as you solve that problem, the problem then of his speaking to your wife whenever and about whatever is also going to diminish rather naturally as a consequence of solving the uh, the interruption problem. So, uh, um, again, thank you for your call. And, uh, David, uh, thanks for being a part of the show and uh, have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. This is John Roseman, and uh, the show is Because I Said So. The number to call is 404-419-6499. I'll say it again, 404-419-6499. You can find out more about me by going to either johnrosemond.com or you can find some videos that I recently recorded at uh, American Family Studios by going to afastore.net. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to the show. The show is called Because I Said So. It's the only radio program in America devoted exclusively to the subject of raising children or parenting, as we now call it. I'm your host, John Roseman, and you can find out more about me by going to my website at johnroseman.com. We begin this last final segment of the show with a biblical parenting segment that I call Parenting by the Book. And I I want to tell our listeners about um, an exercise I do in small group situations with parents. I will, on the whiteboard, when I'm doing a small group, I use a whiteboard. Uh, On the whiteboard, um, I will uh, draw a large cross. On the left-hand side of the cross, on the left-hand arm, I write husband slash wife. On the right-hand arm of the cross, I write Uh, father slash mother. And then I ask everyone in the group, and there may be uh, 15, 20 people in the group. I usually hold those to less than 20 people. I will ask them to uh, draw the cross, uh, label the arms accordingly, and then fill in under each, uh, in each column, the, the percentages that are appropriate to each column. And by that, I mean fill in the blanks in the following sentence. And the sentence goes like this. In the last week of the time I spent in my family, available to my family, I spent blank percent of time in the role of either husband or wife and blank percent of time in the role of either father or mother. And everybody writes down their percentages in the appropriate column. And then they turn those into me, and I do some quick math. And uh, I say quick because it it isn't difficult to come up with averages here. Um, Never, never has the percentage under husband and wife in a small group situation like this exceeded 15%. And more often than not, the percentage is right around 10% which means that the percentage usually for father-mother is 90%. I step back from the whiteboard. I, I put those percentages on the whiteboard, step back, and here's what I say. If all of the problems in American parenting could be boiled down to one specific issue, uh, this would be it. The fact that people have lost a sense of priorities when it comes to their proper roles within their families. I am a member of the last generation of American children to be raised in households where typically your parents functioned 75 to 80 percent as husband and wife, and uh, therefore 20 to 25 percent as father and mother. And those figures over the last, uh, what this exercise illustrates is that those figures over the last couple of generations have basically switched places. And um, the second thing I say is, if you violate God's plan for living in any respect, you are going to bring down problems on your head. Uh, Clearly, God wants parents to remain primarily, even when they have children, in the roles of husband and wife. How do we know this? Because of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which says, and they shall become one flesh. 
What is happening in the American family today is that uh, two people go to an altar. They, uh, they pledge to be husband and wife until uh, death do them part is the usual language. And uh, several years later, they have a child. And then a year after that or so, they have another child. And if you look in on this typical American family, a couple of years after the birth of the first child, you are going to find that these people are now acting as if they took a vow at that altar that said, I take you to be my husband. I take you to be my wife until children do us part. It is essential to the strength of the family that parents remain primarily in the roles of husband and wife, that husband and wife talk to one another more than they talk to their children, that they pay more attention to one another than they talk to their children, that uh, they are more interested in a relationship with one another than they are with their children. I know that sounds radical to today's parenting ears, but that is the way that it should be. And um, we need to understand that in America— We are having problems in the raising of children that our great-grandparents did not have because we are doing things differently. And you cannot, once again, violate God's principles for living and not bring down problems on your head. Uh, They shall become one flesh, uh, not parent and child, husband and wife. I'm John Roseman. This is Because I Said So. Our phone number is 404 419-6499. We've got a caller on the line, Katie from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Katie, not far from me, as a matter of fact. How are you doing? I'm great, John. Thanks for taking my call. Oh, it's my pleasure. How can I help you today? Well, my daughter is almost nine years old, and getting her to brush her teeth has never been easy. However, it was taken up a notch last summer. She had to have eight cavities filled. Now, toothbrushing involves a sonic toothbrush and prescription toothpaste. The toothbrush itself is painless, and my daughter chose the flavor of the toothpaste. Yet, my announcement of, it's time to brush your teeth, is often met with resistance and or flat-out refusal to brush her teeth, arms crossed, glaring eyes, and all. On occasion, my husband or I will have to hold her arms and force the toothbrush into her mouth, which is not pleasant for anyone. Oh, my goodness. How how can I end and win this battle and make things more pleasant for all of us? Uh, (laughs) All right. I I have a solution for you, I hope. Um, And I really, really do, because I've I've been asked this this very question before. Um, Let me ask you this. Would you be aware, would you know... Uh, if she didn't brush her teeth? In the morning, I would because I smell her breath to make sure she has. Okay. But in the evening, I'm up there with her so I can see her when she does it. And when she does it herself, it's typically not very good, which is probably what caused the eight cavities last summer. Okay. Well, you're probably going to have to tweak this uh to the specifics of your situation, but here's what I'm going to suggest. Here's what I'm going to prescribe, not suggest, to you. And, and, and by the way, this has worked very well with other uh, toothbrushing-resistant children, toothbrushing-resistance disorder children. <laughs> um, what you do is you simply say to your daughter— your eight-year-old, and and by the way, you you've got to stop the the physical, you know, the holding her down and brushing her teeth for. Mm-hmm. Um, you just simply you and your husband sit down with her and say, uh, "We consulted with uh, the world's most brilliant parenting expert," mm-hmm. and uh, 
he told us that based on his experience, eight-year-olds who don't brush their teeth, uh, who refuse to brush their teeth, who are too lazy to brush their teeth, aren't getting enough sleep. And so, until you are brushing your teeth independently and uh, have demonstrated that you are going to brush your teeth uh, independently at least, how many times a day, Katie, do you want her to brush? Twice. You brush your teeth in the morning, you brush your teeth in the evening without us reminding you, without us uh, holding you down, which we're not going to do any longer, uh, you are going to be in bed immediately after dinner. And this is so that you will get enough sleep, so that you will overcome your toothbrushing laziness. And um, Katie, this uh, the uh, the technique has worked very, very well with other children who have had this problem. And um, what you do is you simply uh, expect her to demonstrate to you in the morning and in the evening that she has brushed her teeth, whether she calls you into the bathroom to witness this or not. She needs to demonstrate it in one way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. And when she has gone for one month brushing her teeth independently without any uh, instigation from you or your husband, then she gets her regular bedtime back. Highly motivating. It is. Do you think this is truly an issue with brushing her teeth, or is it more of a power struggle? Well, it's turned into a power struggle, Katie. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about it in my mind based on your description, and, and that's what you need to back out of because l- let me tell you something, and this is a general rule. You cannot win a power struggle with a child, not over something like this. You can't do it. And this is going to, if you don't step back out of this and use uh, the technique that I've just described, this is going to get worse and worse and worse over time. Katie, thanks for uh, joining the show. Thanks for your question. You're welcome. Thank you for taking my call. Oh, absolutely. Uh, no, you, you are welcome. Really appreciate it. And uh, David and Michelle, thanks for your calls earlier in the show. Uh, we're about out of time. But before I leave you, I want to tell you something that might be very helpful to your family, especially in light of what we've been talking about today. It's my recently updated bestseller, The New Six-Point Plan for Raising Happy, Healthy Children. You know, parents aren't their children's friends. Parents should be leaders of children, not friends of children. And if you lead first, by the way, your friendship with your children, when friendship becomes the appropriate uh, condition, will be much, much richer. Lead first. Friendship will naturally follow. This book, The New Six-Point Plan for Raising Happy, Healthy Children by your host, John Roseman, will help you put your life and your parent-child relationships in the right order and includes many easy-to-relate-to questions from parents, which I answer with both common sense and, I hope, a sense of humor. You can find out more by going to johnrosemond.com. Our producer on Because I Said So is the inimitable Rich Rosel with assistance from Lisa Wysakowski, who is my managing agent in Buffalo, New York. Our calls were handled by Thomas Rosel. And uh, I'm John Roseman, psychologist, syndicated columnist, author, public speaker, and now radio talk show host. Thanks for listening, and be sure to join us again next weekend. Why? Because I said so. From Creative Genius Productions and American Family Radio Network.